workaholism is out. Coasting is in. A compulsion to work excessively hard and long hours is just something of the past. It's no longer a viable option any longer. Being an overachiever is something that people did a long time ago. It's no longer something that's worthwhile to pursue anymore. This is actually a growing mindset that is gaining traction and momentum very quickly that are among the Generation Z population. Generation Z or Gen Z has also been coined the term the Zoomers generation. Now you might say, am I a Zoomer? Well, for the vast majority of you, no, we're not. Uh, This is that demographic succeeding the millennials and preceding Generation Alpha. Researchers and popular media use the mid to late 1990s as starting birth years and the early 2010s as ending birth years. So if you're somewhere born between mid-1990s and maybe the early 2010s, welcome, you're a Zoomer. Isn't that cool? Now, for those of us who aren't Zoomers, we need to be a little more informed about what's Zooming about them. For those who are among the Zoomers, scaling back from any notion of living for their work or working overtime is largely not in their vocabulary. Depending on who you're talking to, to tie your sense of purpose and fulfillment to what you do for work or somehow working overtime, it is no longer a priority for them. Instead, it's closing your laptop at 5 p.m., doing only your assigned task, never going beyond the call of duty. It's a lifestyle that values, at least it portrays itself this way, of spending less time working in your job and spending more time with family and friends. Uh, These are just some of those common traits that define the latest workplace trend of quiet quitting. Sounds like a good thing, right? Who would not aspire to work less in their job and spend more time with family and friends? Who among us would not want a healthier life-work balance. Uh, Quiet quitting is actually a fairly new buzzword circulating around the internet, and now it's even reaching into mainstream workplaces. I'm not sure if it's made it into your workplace yet, but get ready, you old fuddy-duds, millennials and older, the Zoomers are coming. Now to catch some of us up to speed, again, what, what does it mean to be a Zoomer or among the Gen Zers? Well, approximately two months ago, a TikTok video on quiet quitting was posted that went instantly viral. As many TikTok users shared their own experiences in response by posting hashtag quiet quitting. The video gained 8.2 million views on the platform in less than a month. So what exactly is quiet quitting? Isn't this just another catchy buzzword that youngsters are using to talk about the healthier work-life balance? Well, it depends on who you talk to. The term quiet quitting can have positive and virtuous connotations latched to it. So, for example, the 20-something-year-old engineer who posted that video back in July 
that only lasts 17 seconds. They got all these hits. Here's what he said, quote, I've recently learned about this term called quiet quitting. Well, you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is, it's not. And your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. In other words, quiet quitting, according to this young man and the millions who hashtagged an agreement, it's not really about quitting. It's more like a philosophy of doing the bare minimum, being really good at mediocrity in your job. It's about divorcing your ego from what you do for a living and not striving for perfection. It's setting boundaries and simply completing the past you're supposed to do in the time you've been given. No extra frills, no more knowing, uh, kowtowing to your boss or customers, no more working nights and weekends, and no more incessantly checking emails. Quiet quitting says workaholism is out. Coasting is in. Call it the work-life balance manifesto. Since the concept of quiet quitting has begun reverberating all over the internet and around the workplace, there are different perspectives on it. Supporters of it argue that quiet quitting is a way to safeguard your mental health, prioritize your family, and avoid burnout. However, not everyone agrees with this Gen Z mentality. For example, Ariana Huffington says, quiet quitting isn't just about quitting on a job, it's a step towards quitting on life. She argues that quiet quitters would be better served finding jobs they are actually passionate about. Multi-million dollar uh, man Kevin O'Leary says, quote, people who shut down their laptop at five, they don't work for me. I hope they work for my competitors. Now, friends, whether you're an advocate or you are antagonistic about the term quiet quitting and its mentality in the workplace, I wonder if this mentality has negatively affected the church of Jesus Christ. I wonder if this scaling back attitude this minimalistic approach of commitment and concern, a decaying decline of priority and passion has actually subtly crept into many ministries and many local churches. Now, on the one hand, pastors, as spiritual leaders, should never ask of their congregation to do more than they are willing to do themselves. Pastors should set the example. That's precisely what Jesus taught on servant leadership in the Bible. And pastors should never ask their congregation to do anything that would dishonor God or cause them to disobey what Jesus commands them to do in other spheres of their life. In other words, pastors or elders, they're not bottom line only cutthroat CEOs. They are not heartless dictators who callously demand to get their way. Now, if these men are qualified according to biblical standards, in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus chapter 1, these men are kind and loving, humble and hospitable, convictional and courageous under shepherds. 
men who are sinners saved by God's grace, who have been set apart in Christ's church to work hard for the progress in the faith and the joy of God's people. Pastors, in that sense, are temporary caregivers of the soul. By God's grace, they are men who will lead and teach, protect, and pray for the flock that ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ. And the spiritual leaders in any local church should always be reminded of this. Before the sheep are members of their local church, they are first members of Christ, universal, and elect church. That means Christians are temporarily church members of temporary pastors. But Christians, sinners who've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, adopted by a good heavenly father, Friends, they first and foremost belong to the Lord forever. Friends, as pastor, as a pastor, that is a line we have to walk, is to never ask more of God's people than Jesus calls his people to follow him. But on the other hand, a pastor should never lower the bar of the cost of following Jesus in the ways that all that Christ, fought, Christ followers are to follow him, uh, to teach and lead Christians in such a way that they are never challenged, never asked to examine their lives, never called to a holy life that represents Jesus. Friends, if any pastor lowers the bar, if he actually softens the cost, if he begins to reinvent and reinterpret what Jesus said, friends, he's not faithfully shepherding Christ's church. And friends, if a congregation loses sight of her holy calling from God, she loses sight of her urgent mission given to her by Jesus, she will be a dying and ineffective church that is useless for the kingdom. So with that said, we should all examine our hearts this morning. Has a malaise mentality has a soft and sluggish mindset of a cross-less Christianity subtly crept into our minds, has a spiritually unhealthy attitude of minimalistic thinking about our commitment to the local church, the bride of Christ, the household of faith, dulled any of our hearts lately, has quiet quitting on the church, slowly eroded much of our investment in the people that Christ died for. If truth be told, how many of us here at CCBC this morning would admit that we've lost sight of Christ's beautiful vision for his church? Brothers and sisters, in what ways have you and I shown neglect towards God's holy calling an urgent mission on our lives. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to the very end of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 230. Nehemiah chapter 9. This morning, we look to the next section in the book of Nehemiah, and in this next section in our current sermon series, we're going to see if the people of Israel would live up to God's vision for God's people? Or would they simply coast? Would they still 
view their life on earth in a minimalistic kind of way. So how would the people of Israel respond? How would they respond under Nehemiah's leadership and Ezra's teaching ministry as they were beginning to experience the first fruits of genuine revival? I'll begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 38, and we'll continue on to the rest of chapter 10. Please follow with me. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Meaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benuai of the sons of Hinnadad, Kabmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peleah, Hanan, Mika, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Perosh, Peath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ader, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Hereph, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hizer, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hushiah, Hananiah, Hashub, Helohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, Maaseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anon, Maluk, Haram, Bana. And all God's people said. <laughs> the rest of the people, the priest, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service 
of the house of our God for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests to minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. For those who have been with us for this sermon series in Nehemiah, we have witnessed two huge movements in the book. In chapters 1 to 7, we witnessed God's powerful hand and his favor to provide everything they would need to construct that massive wall around the city. Now, this construction project was much more important and much more grand than maybe a fence around our house or some kind of privacy fence around our children's playground equipment. Uh, No, this was a big and obvious visible sign that as the walls went up, it was indicating to the nations that God was strengthening and protecting his people in their homeland once again. With the walls going up, the gates being surely to close, uh, that meant that the people would now be able to repopulate into their desolate, once desolate hometowns. The nations that had once mocked and scorned these remnant people would now, the roles would be reversed. The weak would become the strong, and the strong would be humbled. Then beginning in chapter 8, spilling over into chapter 9, we begin observing what happens when God's people encounter the living and abiding word of God. In chapter 8, God's word becomes the centerpiece, not an afterthought but the centerpiece of their corporate assembly or their corporate gathering. And it began to take root in their hearts. Their hearts began to be full of praise again to God as they heard the scriptures read and taught in their ears for hours on end throughout the day. Eventually, the reading and teaching of God's word led them to obey God's word. Uh, Portions of God's word that had been neglected ignored and even outrightly rebelled against for quite some time. After they began uh, participating in one of the annual feasts that God ordained for his people, for their joy, the, the Feast of Booths, if you recall, 
And Nehemiah chapter 9 showed us that God was also convicting their hearts over their sin. Friends, it's a good thing when God convicts us of our sin. God is telling us he is for you when he shows you he's against your sin. When he reveals to you that your sin is exceedingly wicked because it's a sin against a holy God. Friends, those are the first signs of God showing his love to you. Uh, Friends, anytime we give in to sin, we harden our hearts. And anytime we heed God's conviction, he softens our hearts to his spirit once again. And in God's kind and steadfast patience towards them, as he's been with us, his forbearance was leading them to repentance. They declare with humility how God had never done anything wrong in their lives. He had always been good. He had always been just. And they had equally declared that the consequences of their sin were just. And not only of their sin, but there was a corporate lament, even confessing the sins and guilt of their forefathers. The descendants, hence why the exile happened in the first place, in Assyria and in Babylon. Friends, we learned last week in Nehemiah chapter 9, that this time of brokenness before God led to a time of heart-searching confession and repentance. This period of fasting and sackcloth was actually a recounting as the people of God were remembering the story of their sin, but also of God's faithfulness. So over the last three weeks together in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, we've actually begun to see something quite beautiful. I would encourage you, if you've been kind of lost in the weeds the last few weeks, read chapters 8, 9, and 10 together. Now, you might need some caffeine if you're going to try to read all those names, especially in family worship. Boom! Everyone's just going to pass out, and it's going to be a Utica situation. But nonetheless, if you skip the names, I think it will be really encouraging for your soul. Or maybe even re-listen to all those sermons from chapters 8 on once again. Why is this beautiful? Why are we coming to like the fourth quarter beautifying process in this story in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen a once aimless, fearful, disobedient, and discouraged people be transformed. They've been transformed into an organized, faithful, obedient, humbled, yet joyful people who are now worshiping the one true God in spirit and in truth. But even as beautiful as that is, God was not done yet. He was not done yet with working in his people that which is pleasing in his sight. Friends, anytime God is desiring to work through his people in powerful ways, he's going to begin that change by working on the inside first. Before God can use any one of us in new, powerful, gospel-advancing ways, he has to break us down. He has to break us of our self-reliance, of our control freak mentalities. He has to recreate that Christ-likeness that we've somehow lost along the way. He's got to prune us, humble us, refine us. And friends, if he does it, he's showing he loves us because he's making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the foundation for revival had begun to take place. The same way God has done tremendous acts of revival in history, 
In church history, in our lives, it was happening in Nehemiah's day. The foundation of revival had begun through the reading and teaching of God's word. Friends, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Friends, if you have any friends that are in a dying church and they're just saying, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, we'll pray for them. But you do need to warn them and encourage them at the same time. God will answer prayers. God will answer those requests. Number one, if there's unrepentant sin in the church, he won't bless that. And number two, God always revives his people through the preaching of God's word. If you're not getting faithful exposition from the pulpit each Lord's Day, leave that church. That's how God always builds his church, through his word. And friends, the fruits of revival had begun to take place. There was obedience to the Lord. There was worship and praise to the Lord. There was joy and gladness in the Lord. There was humbling themselves of confession of sin and repentance of those sins. But now we see the next beautiful fruit, the next beautiful way that God is reshaping his people. And that is the fruit of a renewed commitment, a renewed and revived resolve. If the people of Israel were going to have a renewed commitment to the Lord, what would they resolve to do? If the people of God at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church are going to have a renewed commitment as we enter into our third year as a church in just two days, what must we, beloved, resolve to do? If you're taking notes, I have two main points. Point number one. We must make a joint commitment to live holy lives together. We must make a joint commitment to live holy lives together. We must make a joint commitment to live holy lives together. Point number two, we must make a serious commitment to sustain and support the work of the Lord. We must make a serious commitment to sustain and support the work of the Lord. Number one, we must make a joint commitment to live holy lives together. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 27, we should have noticed 84 names. Now, there are way more than 84 people in Israel at this time, way more. But among those 84 names are two civil officials. Right there in verse 1, we have Nehemiah the governor, who, who we've been learning about all throughout the book, and a man named Zedekiah, but we don't really know much about him. Seeing that he's paired right there with Nehemiah, he's probably in some high-up authority either alongside Nehemiah or directly under him. Then you'll also notice 21 names of priests, 17 names of Levites, 44 names of chiefs or heads of the people. Uh, These are all names of either individuals previously mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. So take Nehemiah 3, know that long list there, or Nehemiah 7 that I punted and didn't read, uh, at least the vast majority of it. You can read those sections and see some of those names. Or these are names of families representing those individuals. So some of you may be more familiar with the book of Ezra. Read Ezra chapter 2. Uh, You'll see some of those names of families as well 
represented there. Either way, the significance of this next section in Nehemiah and that it's being headlined with the name of civil and spiritual leaders is twofold. It's very important. Very important to see the forward momentum if God is going to do something tremendous as he sees his people with this renewed resolve. First, the leadership was leading by example. The leadership was leading by example. Whatever commitment they were going to ask of the community of faith, the people of God, they were going to have to put their names on the line first. They were willing to put their reputation, their livelihood, and their witness before God publicly before all to be held accountable to the commitments they would call the people of Israel to make. Friends, if you're viewed here as a leader at CCBC or in your job or in your home or anywhere in this community, would those same people who view you as a leader say you lead by example? Do others see you lead first by serving them and listening to their cares and concerns? And do others who see you lead, lead first by doing what you are telling others to do? In other words, do you practice what you preach? Biblical leadership leads by example. Secondly, this was a commitment made by the entire religious community. This was a commitment made by the entire religious community. From the most well-known Jew to the least known Jew, to the oldest grandpa with back pain, to the wild youngster who could understand what was being said, men and women, boys and girls. Friends, chapter 10 is a team-wide, family-wide, church-wide, community-wide commitment. All hands on deck and all hands are in. If the people of Israel truly desired God's best, God's blessing, the untold amounts of wonderful things he had planned for them, this would require, this would be of necessity to have a 100% buy-in. A 100% sold out, totally committed, all-in commitment from everyone in the community. Have you ever heard the saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link? A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Friends, that's true of almost any organization. When I'm watching football games on Saturday, I can tell you how good the football team is by the weakest player on the starting 11. The same can be true of a church or a school or any organization. The strength of that organization is only as strong as its weakest link. And we can see that pretty clearly there, that Israel knew that it wasn't just the leaders who had to be all in. It had to be everybody, men and women, boys and girls of all ages. Everyone had to be in. Look with me at verse, chapter 9, verse 38, Nehemiah 9, 
verse 38. Notice how it began. Because of all this. So just stop there for a minute. What is the this? Well, it's basically everything from chapters 8 and 9 that God has done through his word in his people in Israel. But really, the this is the previous nine chapters of Nehemiah. All the way back from God providing Nehemiah all the favor to get all the way from Babylon, Susa, to Jerusalem. Everything they had seen God do, everything they had heard God say in his word. He starts off verse 38, because of all of that, what does he say? We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So who are the we? Who are the we that verse 38 is referring to? Who are the we that make a firm covenant in writing? Well, it's very obvious that the we at least includes the princes, the Levites, and the priests. It's right there in the text. Basically, the leadership. But if we keep reading, the we involved way more people than those 84 names. Look with me now at Nehemiah 10, verses 28 to 29. The rest of the people, did you catch that? Did everybody else? Everybody. Everything in the Happy Meal. Did everybody? The priests, the Levites. Oh, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Friends, we see in crystal clear fashion that the leadership and those who are being led are equally putting their names, their reputations, and their livelihoods on the line. They are all going public. They are all holding one another accountable by signing this document as they had a joint commitment before the Lord. Now, you've probably noticed I keep using the word commitment. You don't see that there in the ESV. I'm not sure what translation you might have, but you might think, well, where are you getting that, pastor? Where's this idea of commitment? All I can see is a bunch of names that you barely pronounced correctly. Well, there are a few places. In Nehemiah 9.38, the ESV translates this, translate this, the one I'm preaching from, we make a firm covenant in writing. A few other reliable English translations say it this way, because of all this, we are entering into a binding covenant in written form. Or another one says, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. Or one very similar, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement in writing. For those of you who like word studies, here's the time where you can geek out. Interestingly, the Hebrew word is not the common word used for covenant, which is berit. Berit. Berit is a common word used throughout the Old Testament to describe a wide diversity of oath-bound commitments called covenants. Covenants are found all throughout the Bible. 
uh, between nations and kings, even friends. Uh, we know that even marriage is a covenant. Uh, we know that God has made covenant with his people. Covenants like with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. But in Nehemiah 9.38, the word berit isn't used there. It's the word amanah, from which the root word we get amen. What does that sound like? Amen. Or amen for us Southerners. This word just simply means a sure agreement, a certain support. In other words, the verse literally reads this, they are making a faithful or firm thing and putting it in writing. They are making a firm or faithful thing and putting it in writing. Now remember, the people of Israel were already in berit or in covenant with God. That means they were not recreating a covenant from scratch. In other words, the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. They were not overdoing that, but they were renewing their commitment to uphold their end of the covenant. So like the ESV and other translations, they aren't wrong for calling it a covenant. It's just helpful to note what kind of covenant we're talking about. So, and initially... What are these renewed commitments, these covenant commitments that they're jointly making together? Well, as I said in the first point, these are joint commitments to live holy lives together. You'll notice there's three of them up front in the text. If you want to take notes, these are the subpoints. They were committed to, number one, holiness in their homes. Holiness in their homes. Number two, holiness in their reverence for the day of rest. Holiness in their reverence for the day of rest or the Sabbath day. And number three, holiness and caring for those in need. Holiness and caring for those in need. Let's look at that first one. There was holiness in their homes. Look with me in Nehemiah 10 verse 30. In Nehemiah 10 verse 30 we read, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As it's taught through Exodus and Deuteronomy, the people of Israel were not to intermarry with non-Jews. Uh, this wasn't just for racial or national purposes. It was primarily religious ones. In order to maintain proper worship to the one true God, and in order to raise up godly offspring from God-fearing parents, the Lord had commanded Israel to marry only within their tribe to promote faithfulness to the Barit, faithfulness to the covenant. Otherwise, if they married those who did not fear God, they would fall prey to idolatry. If they did not marry those who feared God, they would adopt the pagan, wicked, ungodly lifestyles of the nations. Nehemiah calls these the peoples of the land. That's just another way of saying the non-Jews who were in the area. As we learned last week in Nehemiah 9, verse 2, good cross-reference there, uh, one part of their repentance before God was separating or distancing or removing themselves from these ungodly intermixed relationships. Those relationships where God's people had wrongly formed and yoked themselves to non-worshippers of the one true God. Uh, one part of the application I made last week, if you were here, 
was an exhortation to us all regarding our closest relationships and those who are single, who you choose to date. That's because the friends we choose to spend the most time with and the people we choose to date and marry will have a profound effect on our spiritual lives as Christians. Friends, let me just go off cuff here. Listen, God's word changes our life. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm all about long sermons. No one's gonna say amen to that, but they'll agree that I am. But let me tell you the other most profound effect that we have on our life. It's the people we associate with. Where did you get your understanding of church from? The church you grew up in. Where did you get your understanding of the gospel from? The gospel or so-called gospel or some version of it that you heard. Where did you get your understanding of marriage from? Or how you're to treat your spouse? Or how you're to raise your kids? Probably from the home you were raised in. Friends, who we associate with, especially with our innermost feelings, emotions, passions, and life will have a profound effect on whether we're walking with Jesus or against him. For the life of a Christian, parents, we should teach and train our sons and daughters from as early as possible that the most important thing you should look for in a future spouse is that they truly love the Lord. Let me say that again. The most important thing you can teach your children about what they should look for in a future spouse, number one, not number three, is not a good paying job or what family they came from or if they're from the state of Arkansas or they like the Razorbacks. No, it's do they love the Lord? This is Christianity 101. This isn't advanced. This isn't seminary level. These are basics. These are the ABCs of training our children. Parents, we should teach and encourage, and young people, listen to me. You should not date someone simply because they're a nice guy or a cute gal, or simply because they're single, or they're desperate, or you're available and they're available and they happen to like you. Friends, those are faulty and foolish ways of thinking when you're thinking of dating and marriage. So parents, we can't convert our children. And unless you're going to do kind of arranged marriages, Old Testament style, your kids will have to make their own decisions when they're out of the home. But while they're under your roof, under your watch, you have God-given authority to say, no, you will not date her. No, you will not date him. Do not abdicate your role to disciple and shepherd your own children. You will regret it when they're in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and their marriage is in crisis. Take it from someone who pastors many people in this situation. Instill it in them now. Number two, they were jointly committed to holiness in their reverence for the day of rest or the Sabbath day. In verse 31, they were instructed not only to refrain from working their ordinary jobs on the Sabbath, they had to resolve to refrain from commerce and purchasing of goods on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was caked into the Jewish calendar for their physical rest, their spiritual nourishment, but also as a witness to the unbelieving nations around them. Similar to the Old Testament sign of circumcision, the Sabbath day was a sign of their covenant with God 
And on the Sabbath, their obedience to the Sabbath would set them apart. It would make them unique. It would make them distinct. While everyone else is basically selling and purchasing and living life as normal, that day set apart for God's people to behold their God was a witness to those around them. For Christians today, the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, is set apart each week for the strengthening of our faith and the building up of Christ's church. Uh, Friends, apart from sickness, vacation, and the occasional providential hindrances that do come up in our lives, friends, we should make it a top priority to gather weekly with God's people as a church. Let me put that up there with the whole dating spiel. Instill in your children and instill by leading by example to speak positively about the Lord's Day positively about what's coming on Sunday. Start it on Friday and let the weekend center its attention around the Lord's day. Do what you want on Friday and Saturday, but in whatever ways you need to encourage and instill in your family, there's a specialness when we gather with his people. Let's talk like it. Let's joyfully encourage people to get excited for the Lord's day. Friends, it's a command for us to obey, to gather regularly, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Friends, this is not just for your family's good, but it's for your own spiritual good. John Piper puts it real bluntly, in very Piper-like fashion, when he says this, quote, there is a great gulf between the Christianity that wrestles with whether to worship at the cost of imprisonment and death and the Christianity that wrestles with whether the kids should play soccer on Sunday morning. Friends, if you can't say amen, you might as well say ouch. Let's get back to reading New Testament Christianity once again. Not only was it a holiness for their homes, not only was it a holiness for that Sabbath day, but number three, there was a commitment to holiness and caring for those in need. The second half of verse 31 referred to no harvesting of crops or collecting of debts in the seventh or the Sabbath year. Uh, this was an act of faith for the people of Israel to give the land a break and to free up those who were in debt so that those who were poor or those who were hired hands, sojourners making their way through, could be freed from those kind of financial burdens. It was a kind and merciful way uh, that God was showing them in their annual and even every seven years to give the land rest. Friends, all three commitments taken together show that not just the leaders and not just the people, but those who were leading and those who were being led were jointly concerned for holiness, jointly concerned for godliness, jointly concerned for their testimony and witness before all the unbelievers watching their lives. And notice, they were concerned not just for their individual witness for for the Lord, but also their corporate witness as a covenant community of God's people. But beloved, there is one more overarching commitment they made as a covenant community of God's people. And it was a commitment that would test who or what they really worshiped. It was a commitment that would prove whether or not the kingdom of God was truly their highest priority. And friends, it was the same commitment that Jesus teaches about in the Gospels. 
in Matthew chapter 6. It was a commitment to test their financial stewardship, which leads to point number two. We must make a serious commitment to sustain and support the work of the Lord. Now, you and I could go as deep as you want in the various aspects of Old Testament Israel's temple worship. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to notice some significant parts of this renewed commitment to God at the temple and its worship and its relevance for us today. In verses 32 to 39, approximately, and these are one of those times if you like to write in your Bible, these are one of those, ooh, cool, nine different times the house of our God is mentioned. The house of our God, 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 the house of our God. Listen, if you repeat something nine times in nine verses, it probably means it's pretty important, right? What is the house of our God referring to? It's speaking of the temple, the central place of worship where God would call his people to approach him on a regular and annual basis to the offering up of sacrifices. Of those various offerings, resources, and sacrifices for the temple, it can be found in verses 33 to 37. But not only sacrifices, there were also temple taxes that had to be paid to actually provide for all these offerings and sacrifices. That's why verse 32 says a third of a shekel. And then we'll also notice there was a refrain there of the first fruits, or really it just means the first or best portion of everything that belonged to them. Uh, The first fruits or the firstborn could have been agricultural products. It could have been animals, even their own firstborn sons, were to be dedicated to the Lord as a display of their belief that God owns everything. Then in verses 37 to 39, we're going to see the mentioning of tithes and the tithe of the tithe. The word tithe just simply means tenth or ten percent. Uh, The tenth in Israel's day was actually very similar to how we might pay taxes today in our government. Uh, What I mean by that is that the tithe was given both to the community and to the temple or the place of worship. It was to be laid up in the temple's storehouse, or you could say a large room or like a a big barn, if you will. Verse 38 alludes to. Uh, The tithe in their day would be used for several purposes. These are a few sub points you could put in there. Uh, What were these tithes, these tenth portions of various things in their lives to be used for? Well, first, it was to provide financial payment, or basically the livelihood, for the priest. The priests were the spiritual leaders that presented the offerings to God and represented the people before God. Uh, In our New Testament time, uh, scriptures teach in the church today, uh, the churches are called to the best of their ability to financially pay for their best pastors and preachers, uh, those who give themselves primarily to the ministry of the word and in prayer. If you want to see some texts that support this idea of financial compensation and support, Galatians 6, verse 6, that Matt read earlier, Galatians 6, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, and 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. First Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. 
Secondly, the tithes were to provide for the temple sacrifices and all the other materials needed for Israel's worship. And this would include the structure, the physical structure of the temple. And so in our day, uh, this could range from anywhere from, hey, we need a pulpit to preach from. It would be great to have a microphone to amplify. Those chairs or the building we're sitting in. Uh, In our modern day, that might mean leasing a building. It costs money. It's not free to live here. Or live here, work here, live here. What do we do here? Chance we're here all the time. Anyway, worship here, be here, hang out here. Uh, If we want to build one day on Chad Colley, it costs money. God's not against money. He owns everything. It's all his anyway. But it costs money to have a facility, to have resources that help facilitate our corporate worship. Thirdly, the tithes were to provide for the economically impoverished of the covenant community. In Israel, that would have typically been the widow, the fatherless, or the sojourner. Uh, In our church body, in our church family, we have in our budget the benevolence fund to care for those in particular difficult situations. Uh, But really, every week, every day, every month, we're in covenant with one another to care for each other's burdens and sorrows. So if a financial need arises, we don't necessarily have to grab that from the church budget, but we can look at whatever resources God's given us, our home, our vehicles, whatever's in our wallet or bank account, whatever we can do to share with those who are in need. So if taken together, all these things that the tithes and the tithe of the tithes would provide, they're putting this actually in their commitment, their covenant, this solemn joint commitment to contribute to the work of the Lord. Friends, when we step back from Nehemiah 10, just take a step back, we see that these pledges these vows, these oaths, these commitments. Notice, they were made publicly, personally, corporately, and they were put in writing. Friends, we see a people united together to do God's will. Friends, they are united not around petty or preferential things. They're united around a concern for holiness and godliness in their homes. They're united for a concern for the Sabbath day of rest and worship. They were concerned for the financial stewardship of the temple worship. Friends, what are we seeing among God's people? What are they showing they care most about in their lives? Friends, they cared most about being a distinct, godly, compelling and beautiful witness together for God's glory. They cared about being a distinct, godly, compelling, and beautiful witness together for God's glory. And friends, they showed that priority by even putting that commitment in writing. Friends, whether you realize this or not, this is not some some modern, Western, post-enlightenment idea. You and I write with our signature almost all the time, without even realizing it. Commitments, or sometimes even covenants, towards particular causes or reasons 
than we might realize. So verbally, sometimes married couples may choose to renew their vows as a way of showing their commitment to remain faithful to their spouse in the years ahead. All of us at some point have signed major stacks of paper and put our first and last name on it when signing a lease agreement on apartments or buying a house. And by doing so, we are promising to do what the stipulations of the contract require. Or consider how on different occasions when decisions are being made by a large body of people, petitions may be formed by local governments, associations or schools who are trying to get your signature in support of some type of cause or vote or fundraiser. But beyond the commercial and civil realms, the idea of a personal and corporate commitment and putting it down in writing is actually very common among Christians throughout church history. This is the church history part of the sermon, lesson that is invaluable for our church. Historically, Baptist churches used to be known widely as having in their founding documents these things called church covenants. Today in the 21st century, especially in the Bible Belt, it is so sad that many Christians think it's cultish or just plain weird to have such formal commitments in order to join a church. Now, to be truthful, I'm sure there are legalistic and gospelist so-called churches that have used church covenants for abusive and bad reasons, and they've given Christ a bad name. But friends, we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because some so-called churches have abused church covenants for unbiblical reasons doesn't mean we swing the pendulum to the opposite end. Beloved, compared to our Baptist brothers and sisters in generations past, we, my friends, are the weird ones. Christians living in our contemporary day may think that church covenants or any type of formalized church membership commitments are strange and unnecessary, but I want to challenge anyone who may presently be holding on to that ignorant belief. My friends, the pervasive lack of any meaningful membership today in scores of churches is what has contributed to the religious dumpster fire we see. It is what has contributed to the spiritual wasteland that Christ's sheep have to walk through to try to find green pastures and still waters somewhere. What is a spiritual wasteland? It's a place where church buildings are on virtually every corner, but it's a place where there is zero practice of loving church discipline. A place where there is zero accountability for adults and kids who were baptized at a super young age but show almost no fruit into their teenage or adult years. What is spewing out of our pulpits after pulpits all over this country like dirty water from a sewage pipe is this toxic message. You can come to Jesus and you can be a Christian, but you don't have to commit to a local church. Let me say that again. You can come to Jesus, you can be a devout, obedient, give my life to the Lord, follower of Christ, but you don't have to commit to a local church or submit to its authority. Friends, that is toxic. That's not biblical. That is foreign to the New Testament. 
that is foreign to large swaths of church history. You can come to Jesus, have your baptism birthday, and then basically do whatever you want. You're accountable to no one. You can live like the world, talk like the world, care nothing for holiness or service or submission to godly authority like pastors for your spiritual good. Friends, you want to know the number one thing that is killing any sign of a robust Christian witness in a dark world? It's diminishing biblical, regenerate church membership and instead teaching a free agent, me and Jesus got our own thing going, Christianity. In other words, it's telling people they're A-okay with Jesus and they're going to heaven even if they have nothing to do with Jesus' people. Friends, that is not loving. That is deceitful. Friends, I know you are basically like preaching to the choir. You joined this church and you signed a church covenant. But friends, you have friends in other churches. I care for other churches. We all should care for other churches. We should want to see churches prosper and grow and be revitalized. But because of the pervasiveness of meaningless church membership and basically pastorless churches, churches and pastors should re-examine their practices. Friends, in Nehemiah's day and Christians in our day should renew our minds of what it means to be committed to God's people and God's work. Friends, church covenants are simply a summary of the one another commands in the New Testament. It helps us define who is following Jesus and give clarity of what following Jesus looks like. Friends, tonight, even as members of this body, We will come together for our next members meeting and we'll recite the church covenant together. Think about those pledges again. Think about the vows and promises that we've made before God to one another. Visitors, if you're here today and you're not a member of a local church, spend time in our lobby today reading those pledges for your own soul and thinking through what it means to follow Jesus and the fellowship of his church. Well, friends, let's be honest here. Um, These are some pretty holy and lofty Commitments, right? Holy living, generous financial stewardship. Who among us can say they've actually lived up to all the promises they've ever made? Who among us as members of this church can say by looking at the church covenant, which is a summation of the Bible, that we have actually perfectly obeyed all those commands? Beloved, there's only one who's ever done that. There's only one who's ever fulfilled every promise he's made. Only one who has been perfectly obedient to God's will. And that is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Even as young as 12 years old, Jesus was concerned about his father's house. The eternal word who became flesh said that his body was the true and new temple. And as sinners... Friends, we are covenant breakers. We fail miserably in obeying God's law. But Christ, in his great love for us, offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin, as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Sinners like us. You see, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he's the first created. No, he's the first in rank 
and he's the first in importance. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, Jesus came not just to teach the law, but he fulfilled the law. Jesus is not just someone you ought to know. If you know Jesus, you know all you need to know. He is the preeminent. He is the most important. He is the mediator, the high priest, and the covenant-keeping Savior of Israel and his people. Friends, Christ entered into a curse, and he became a curse for us, so that if we put our faith in him, the wrath of God would fall upon him, and that in Christ we would be blessed in him. Christ looked to his Father and said, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He obeyed his heavenly father to the point of death, even death on a cross. There has never been a better covenant-keeping person than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our teacher, he is our savior, and he is the only leader who has ever led us by leading by example. He is the perfect one we should imitate. Not me, not the elders, not anyone in this room. Jesus Christ. And if you follow any human leader, imitate them only and so far as they imitate who? Christ. Christ is building not a physical temple, but he's building a spiritual people called the church. The church is not Jew nor Gentile, but it's one new humanity. We, my friends, who possess God's spirit are the temple of the living God. Friends, you know what that means? We've been offering up to God this morning spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to him. When you pray, he's pleased. When we confess sin, he's pleased. When you give generously and those black boxes are online, he's pleased. When you gather regularly in Christ's name, he's pleased. Friends, we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved, but to those who are perishing, we are a stench. Oh, friends, that's why the church of the living God is not just an event. To be a member of a church is not just something you do like joining a gym or Sam's Club. We are integrated together, united as one people who serve the one true God who are on mission to do his will. Friends, that means everything that you and I have has been given to us by him. Everything we have belongs to him. So anything we ever do in this church We are dependent on him to provide and we are trusting in God to multiply whatever we offer up. Friends, he doesn't need a big, massive church to get his work done. He just needs broken, small, weak people 
who see Jesus as preeminent in their life. Oh, friends, is that not what you see in Nehemiah 10? A remnant who've been exiled are now being led by a wonderful God. They love God. They worship God. They are going, God, what have you given me? Here's a lamb. Here's a sheep. Here's my born. Here's that piece of property. Here's my boat. Here's my expensive vacation that I can forego another year. I'll take a pay cut. I'll go downward in my financial mobility for upward increase in the kingdom. Friends, we all right now are two days away from Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church celebrating its two-year-old birthday. This is a supernatural organism. We were once not a church, and it came into being because he willed it to happen. Friends, what a privilege. In a little while, this life will be a long time ago. I'm a temporary pastor of temporary church members, but we eternally belong to Jesus. Only when life will what? Soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We should all go home and say, Lord, show me everything you've given me. Teach me what it means to be a generous, sacrificial, joyful steward of all you've given me. How can I contribute to what you're doing through this church family for what you want in the years to come? May it be a sweet season of prayer. Going back to that secret place in the closet. I trust that God would show us we've been more blessed than we even realized. Members of CCBC, I don't know what the future holds for our church. but God does. I don't even have all the answers of how we're going to build one day on Chad Colley. But God does. One of my heroes in the faith, as you know, Charles Spurgeon, he one time shared with his congregation after the Metropolitan Tabernacle was completed this word of encouragement that I hope would stir us up in whatever God has for us in the days ahead. I said just now that this project has gone beyond the era of objections. It has even passed beyond the realm of difficulties. We have had many difficulties, but far more providences. The ground was as much given to us by God as if he had sent an angel to clear it for us. The money, too, has been given, even beyond our hopes. And we have had it from quarters where we should least have expected it. All the Christian churches contributed their portion, and almost all the ends of the earth have sent their offerings from India, Australia, America, and everywhere. Have we received something from God's people to help us in this work? We hope now we shall go on even to the end of it without feeling any diminution of our joy. Only give us a minister preaching Christ and a people who will serve their God and feel it to be their pleasure to devote themselves and their substance to his cause. And nothing is impossible. 
members of CCBC? Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's keep our eyes on the work of the Lord and not neglect his house. If Jesus is preeminent, he's most important in all the universe, is your life showing you believe that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we do praise you. You are so good. You are so gracious. You are so kind. Lord, you have blessed us beyond measure eternally and you have blessed us beyond measure even with the things that we have. Lord, we pray you would make us faithful and generous stewards of all you've given us. Lord, we pray that every member of this body would consider their stewardship before you. Every member of this body would recognize that we are responsible for one another's witness. Lord, we pray that we would encourage one another, speak the truth with one another, restore one another when we're caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness. Lord, we pray that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would persevere knowing that we will reap a harvest in whatever you determine that harvest to be if we do not give up. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.